There is a church in town where they say to one another, take off your bib and put on your apron. They say it so much they have actually started giving new members an apron during a welcome ceremony. It's become something akin to putting on a stole at an ordination, a call to ministry and a sign of office. They're saying, put away childish things when you come here and take on the work that we are given to do in service to a hurting and broken world. They're saying, grow up, get busy. That is the way to authentic and attractive community. That is the way of the community of Jesus. Work in the kitchen has often been something that goes on behind the scenes, downstairs at Downton Abbey, out back with no men allowed in traditional rural western Tanzania, servants' work without prestige, something sometimes discomforting, often hard duty at unsociable hours, not unlike the work that surrounds a burial with its cleaning and dressing, anointing, embalming, Of course there were women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and of Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. Of course they were there, watching, waiting, behind the scenes in many ways, but present nonetheless. They're not outsiders among Jesus' band of followers, But every one of those followers is by choice or more often by circumstance outside the bounds or at least on the margins of civilized society. And these women were not alone in their watching and waiting either. For Joseph of Arimathea had also put on his apron and marched in to see Pilate, the Roman procurator, marched in boldly, we are told, For a moment I had a picture of him with sleeves rolled up, arms covered in baking flour, carrying a rolling pin perhaps, and certainly wearing his apron. He was on the margins too, because he was expectantly waiting for the kingdom of God. We don't know the content of his expectation or his hope, but we know that he responded in some deep way to Jesus and asked for his body. Mark wants us to know there's no trickery here, that Jesus really and truly died, certified by the Roman authorities. Whatever is to follow cannot be some magic trick or illusion, a rumor started by imprecise or disheartened disciples. Mark wants to be clear that Jesus really and truly died. Life was ended, not interrupted. What the women were facing and what Joseph was facing And in time, what every disciple, including every one of us, must face, the reality of death, the reality of Jesus' death. At this point in the story, life is over. Death, by every measure, has the last word. Death has the victory. In the face of death, the women and Joseph of Arimathea roll up their sleeves, don their metaphorical aprons, and go to work. Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb, all this witnessed by the women. Mark, you may remember, does not tell any story of Jesus' birth. 
and he will tell no stories of his appearing in the resurrection either. A later disciple who just couldn't stand, presumably just couldn't stand the ambiguity of that lack of story, chose to add some appearance stories much later. But Mark doesn't dress things up for us. Jesus appeared in the world a prophet and more than a prophet. He taught and healed and ended in inevitable conflict with the religious authorities. He became the quintessential victim of human anxiety and the sin that ensues from that. He was executed in one of the vilest ways we have yet devised for the killing of a prisoner. And some followers laid him in the tomb. But we who come later have the benefit of other later versions of the story. Writing 20 or 30 years after Mark, but drawing heavily on Mark in many ways, albeit for distinctive purposes, both Matthew and Luke tell stories of Jesus' birth, shaped in part, we presume, by Mark's story of his death. And because of that, when we hear this ending of the story of this dreadful day, which I still have a hard time calling good, Mark's account of the burial becomes a clue for us, a hint of light appearing on a distant horizon. Here's what I mean. Can you think of another story where Jesus is in something like a cave hewn from the rock, except there he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid not in a tomb but in a manger? For those of us who come later than Mark's first readers or hearers, the story of Jesus' burial is a clue that some kind of birth is about to happen. Those apron-clad women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, are not merely mourners. They're also midwives at the dawn of a new age, a new creation, a new world order in which death will not be the last word. The last word will become love. The very love in which they partake, the very love they've seen in Jesus, the very love which they have demonstrated by following Jesus, even to seeing where he was laid. We must wait for that new world to be made manifest. We must wait for our time of celebration. And even then, even on Sunday, we must wait for the full manifestation of the reign of God on earth. But in the meantime, we can take off our bibs, put away childish things, don an apron, face death as sober grown-ups who even now can taste the first fruits of a banquet yet to come in every act of love and care that we are blessed to give or to receive. It is by our service, just like the service of the women and of Joseph, that the world will know that in the end, and even now, love is stronger than death.